Welcome to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart Podcast. I am your host, Karen Litzy, and today's podcast is brought to you by GoDaddy. Buy your own domain name, build your site, or use any of GoDaddy's business tools and save 30%. Head over to podcast.healthywealthysmart.com, click on the resources page and the GoDaddy link to get to save 30% today. All right, so I am fresh off the plane from both the combined sections meeting in San Antonio for the American Physical Therapy Association and before that the San Diego Pain Summit. So we recorded a ton of podcasts um, and they should start, we'll start getting those out uh, next week and then all through the whole month of March. So much good information there. I'm super excited for everyone to hear all these great recordings because it was super fun. It's also why I have like no voice left. Um, So talking about great recordings, today's episode, I edited it this morning, listened through it again. It's so good. My guest is Andrew Vygotsky, and Andrew is currently a master's student in bio medical engineering at Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois, where he is concentrating on musculoskeletal biomechanics. His thesis work aims to elucidate the relationship between the shear wave velocity of muscles as measured using supersonic shear imaging and muscle stiffness in vivo. He is completing this work in two different labs, the Neuromuscular Biomechanics Laboratory and the Neurobionics Lab under Drs. Sabrina Lee and Elliot Rouse, respectively. Before attending Northwestern, Andrew graduated with a BS in kinesiology from Arizona State University. It was during those undergraduate studies that he started getting involved in research. Aaron Fesser supervised him in ASU's Motion Analysis Laboratory, where he carried out two data collections that resulted in three publications. While at ASU, he was also able to secure an internship under Dr. Brett Contreras while he was completing research for his PhD. Brett has had a profound impact on how Andrew thinks about movement and sports science. Together, they have published over a dozen papers related to strength, muscle hypertrophy, and physical performance, and have a much more in the pipeline. Moreover, he introduced Andrew to other great minds and researchers, such as Chris Beardsley and Dr. Brad Schoenfeld. And in between ASU and Northwestern, like that isn't enough, right? Uh, he split his time between two laboratories, the Leon Root M, uh, the Dr. Leon Root Motion Analysis Laboratory at the Hospital for Special Surgery and the Human Performance Laboratory at CUNY Lehman. At HSS, he worked under Dr. Andrew Kraswecki to develop a 3D mesh model of the gluteus maximus at CUNY Lehman. He worked under Dr. Brad Schoenfeld to train participants and collect data for a training study and also designated and carried out cross-sectional studies that investigate the determinants of squat strength, which is currently in peer review. And he is, you could go to ResearchGate, Google Scholar, PubMed, and of course the show notes for his episode at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com for all of this info. So what do we talk about today? Well, we took to social media to get your questions, and Andrew answered all of them. Um, One is, what is his biggest surprise on engaging clinical practitioners with research advice? How much does he feel like biomechanics matter when looking at injury and pain development across various exercises? And if this was a great question. If he were building his own program to maximize muscle hypertrophy, what parameters would he use and what we can draw from EMG studies and what conclusions are fair to make? And of course, we talked about foam rolling. So all of that is in there. Andrew's great. He literally is probably one of the smartest people I have ever seen. 
and I'm so thankful for him to come on the show. Not only, and not only do we have Andrew Vygotsky on this show, but if you uh, listen closely at the end, I'm pretty sure that you can hear Benson um, meowing or purring into the microphone because we did this at my apartment along with Nicholas Rolnick. Nick is a, an amazing, going to be an amazing PT. He is a student PT at, DPT student PT at Columbia University. And so Nick was so great because he asked some awesome questions. So I was really glad that he was here uh, for this interview because he added so much value to the interview. I'm forever thankful that Nick was here. So um I hope that you enjoy this interview, but before we get to that, for the listeners of the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart podcast, uh, GoDaddy makes registering domain names fast, simple, and affordable. So find out why so many business owners choose GoDaddy to be their domain name register. I use GoDaddy. The Women in PT Summit use GoDaddy. It's super easy. It's not expensive. If I can do it, anybody can do it. So head over to podcast.healthywealthysmart.com, click on the resources tab and click on the Go Daddy icon to save 30% today. All right. So let's get to today's interview with Andrew and Nick. And I, I really think you're going to love it. Okay. Hey, Andrew, welcome to the podcast and welcome to my apartment. This is the first time I've done a podcast with another person from my apartment. So welcome. Thank you for having me. Okay, so we asked social media what they would like to hear from you, and we got a ton of questions. So we're just going to start out with an easy one. So this is from Sean and Kevin Butler, and they would like to know what it's like to be the smartest person alive. <laughs> um, feels pretty good. <laughs> Honestly, though, I wouldn't consider myself even close to the smartest person alive. There are much smarter people that I know and that who have taught me. Uh, like, for example, one of my professors this past semester is probably, arguably, one of the smartest people I've ever met, and I don't even come close to him. So, so what's, who's this person? Uh, his name's Todd Murphy. He's in the mechanical engineering department at Northwestern. And his background, he had an undergrad in mathematics, and he went to Caltech for... Uh, controlled dynamic systems was his PhD and now he researches some stuff related to biomechanics and related to uh, controlled dynamic systems which is essentially modeling things that are moving nice so so you're not quite the smartest person alive (laughs) but you're close so now also tell people who so I said it's from Sean and Kevin Butler so Mm -hmm. you actually know these people yeah okay Um, so I live within a mile of them. I actually went to high school with both of them. Uh, Kevin and I went to undergrad together for a while. I graduated before him, but yeah, we're pretty good friends in person, and I know them very well. Okay, so that that's an okay. I think yeah, I thought that was a trolls. good yeah, yeah. That was a good no. <laughs> I thought that was a good question to start out with. Okay, so l- moving on. So Jason Silvernail actually asked a really great question. Mm-hmm. Um, and Andrew's read these already because they were up on Facebook, but Jason's question is, much of your research, much of your research interests appear to be centered on clinical topics. This is unusual for a non-clinician, but so needed for viewpoint diversity and for avoiding in- inbred thinking. What interests you about clinical topics 
And what was your biggest surprise in engaging clinical practitioners on research evidence? Okay, so there are multiple parts to that question. Uh, first, I'll address, I don't think I'm specifically interested in clinical research. Actually, even my thesis work is very basic science. So for my master's, I'm looking at the relationship between um, shear wave velocity measured using shear wave ultrasound, which is a proxy for shear modulus, which should be related to muscle stiffness and actual muscle stiffness. And I'm also seeing how that relates to joint stiffness. So that's like a very basic science level question. That Sounds totally <laughs> like kindergarten level, <laughs> kindergarten stuff. Yeah, pretty much. It, it's not complicated at all. Um, yeah, so that's where my current research interests are, which aren't necessarily clinical. It'll ultimately build up to more clinical work. But I, I do think it's important to address clinical questions so that our research does make a difference. Otherwise, it's more or less mental masturbation. And like we're just answering these questions with no real implications. And of course, not to say basic science doesn't have implications. It could have huge implications. It's just that you don't understand those implications while you're working with it. It's only after you find those answers that you really understand what your results mean and what your question, um, how your question can affect society, if that makes sense. It does. And, you know, being a non-clinician, but you have worked with clinicians in research. Um, a little bit, not too much. I mean, with my formal link study, for example, I collaborated with Greg Lehman, who's... Mm -hmm like very big within the physical therapy, chiropractic, so on and so forth. And he's actually influenced my thinking a lot. He's a very skeptical thinker, but he's very, um, he's very broad with his knowledge. So he understands both the biomechanics and the neurophysiology and pain science side of mm -hmm. things. And he's kind of really guided my thinking in terms of how to look at things from different angles and say, okay, maybe these results don't necessarily imply this. They could also imply this or that or a third thing. Um, in terms of speaking with clinicians, like Jason asked, I'm really surprised how many clinicians don't follow the research closely. And it almost makes me as a researcher feel kind of useless. Like, is my research really going to influence practice? Is it going to change people's lives? Is it going to do what I want it to do? And it's, it makes it seem almost futile from a research perspective. But... I know that there is a time lag from research to practice, at least in the medical field, of about 17 years. I know. Yeah, it's quite unfortunate. And why do you think that lag exists, and what can be done to shorten that time frame? Because this is something that um, is going to be addressed at the IOC Injury Prevention Conference in Monaco. Okay. Um, so what do you feel from the research side can be done to shorten that lag? Because it is... That's big. I mean, it's almost it's almost ridiculous. Yeah. No, I totally agree. So I think there are a number of things. I'm sure insurance and that side of things plays a role because insurance and the FDA have to approve of these interventions before they can actually be provided to patients. Another thing would be the actual clinicians themselves. Um, many clinicians don't really follow the research closely, so it has to science has to disseminate down from the laboratory to the journals then from the journals to conferences and uh, to schools and people speaking. So it may take a while for clinicians to actually find out about this work, even though it's been out there for a while, which my guess would be that's probably the largest aspect of things, just basic dissemination of science. So I think science advocacy in general could improve things. 
and that seems to be the case online with a lot of pain science stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. And how do you feel social media can play a role in this? I mean, do you see it as a good thing Mm -hmm. or do you see it as being problematic or maybe it's somewhere in the middle? Overall, I definitely see it as a good thing because... I mean, people will complain, oh, it's just an argument on Facebook, oh, it's just an argument on Twitter, so on and so forth. But ultimately, even if it's perceived as just an argument, it's at least planting a seed in somebody's mind. And that seed may grow, or that seed may challenge their initial biases, and that person may start to look into things further and actually start to change their mind over time. One discussion doesn't have to change someone's mind. True. It's something that happens over time. So as long as those discussions do eventually lead to better outcomes, not days from now, not weeks from now, but months, years, so on, or even decades from now, then mm-hmm. I think these online discussions and arguments are a positive thing. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and what, as the researcher, what do you feel that clinicians can do to make you feel like the research you're doing is not for nothing? Do you know what I mean? Like, how can we as everyday clinicians support researchers? Well, clinicians normally speak with other clinicians, right? So um, if clinicians share research with other clinicians or give feedback to the researchers, like, hey, this helped me, or hey, this research could have been better if you did this, I think you should try carrying out another study that implements this, or looks at it this way so basically working with researchers or sharing research that you like with other clinicians I think will have favorable outcomes and will make me as a researcher feel more valued and I think oftentimes clinicians may feel like what's the word I think they may feel maybe uncomfortable reaching out to a researcher So what is your take on that and what would you encourage, how would you encourage people to reach out to researchers? Let's say if they are feeling a little uncomfortable, because I think that can certainly happen, you know, sort of reaching out to the ivory tower, quote unquote. So how can a clinician do that without being weird? I don't know what else, I don't know how else to say that. Without being like weird and creepy and stockish, how can you, how can you accomplish that as a clinician? Uh, No, that's definitely understandable. I've actually heard from clinicians, like, I'll get an email, and they'll be like, hey, I read this paper, I really liked it, or, hey, I read this paper, I have a few questions. First off, I'm excited that somebody actually read my paper, (laughs) because uh, God knows how many people actually read our papers, like, maybe the peer reviewers and, like, five other people, I don't know. (laughs) I'm sure that's highly, highly doubtful, but go ahead. (laughs) Um, But... Anyway, so first off, just saying you read our paper is like a way for us to almost open up. But other than that, if you just say, hey, I'm a clinician, I had a question about this part of your study, or just introduce yourself. Like researchers aren't stuck. Well, we may say we're in an eye for you tower, but we still want input from what's mm-hmm. going on in clinics because most researchers are just PhDs. Uh, I mean, I don't mean to like degrade them just PhDs, but they're not clinicians, right? So they don't get to experience what goes on in the clinic. They don't work with patients every single day. So by having that insight provided to them by clinicians, they could improve their research and they'll be excited by that. 
Yeah, and so Nick, before you got here, Nick was saying that, um, sorry to put you on the spot here, but you were sort of talking about as a clinician, how can you kind of step into the research world without having to be a full-time researcher, right? So can you talk a little bit about that or maybe ask? Yeah, I mean, I just think it's a valid question um, that if we want to contribute to the body of research and, but we yet, we don't want to, you know, take two steps into the, the full-time researcher realm, how clinicians can get involved and help contribute positively to our field. Okay, so yeah, I think there are multiple ways that clinicians can get involved with research. Like I said before, most researchers aren't actual clinicians, so in order to carry out clinical trials, they need clinicians themselves to help them, because people with PhDs can't diagnose, um, they can't treat patients, and they can't actively work with patients. They can only kind of measure outcomes from patients, right? So if you, if you email a researcher that's in the area and say, hey, I'm a clinician, but I'm interested in getting involved with researcher, and they do clinical research, maybe they'll let you start working with them or let you help them carry out a randomized control trial or something along those lines. Um, they may want your input for designing studies, or hell, they may just want your input for designing the methods of the paper. Uh, so long as you, I think, show your competence to the researcher, they'll be open to working with you in some aspect. Yeah, but I think that's great. I think it's great advice because I know a lot of students are certainly interested in doing more research. And and as a practicing clinician, you often think, well, I don't have my PhD, so how? why would I even get involved? How could I get involved? Mm -hmm. So I think that's great um, advice. So now let's get into your research. So now we're going to get into the, the research-heavy questions, the clinical questions. So Jared Hall had a few, which okay. I know you've read some of them. So... I think this is an interesting question. Let's start with this. How much do you feel like biomechanics matter when looking at injury and pain development across various exercises? I think that's a good one. We'll start with that. Okay, so, yeah, that's definitely a good one. And, <laughs> um, I'll address injury first since that's probably a bit more straightforward. So... Injury occurs when tissue fails to adapt to the imposed stimulus. And more or less, that's going to be biomechanical. Like, either there's a physiological response that allows the tissue to adapt, or there's a physiological response that doesn't allow the tissue to adapt. So if I have an ACL and there's too much load for that ACL to handle, that ACL is going to break. That's pretty straightforward. But there are also things like maybe with... I don't know, cartilage degeneration, and that goes back to some of, oh, what's his name from Stanford? Uh, I'm blanking on his name right now. Oh, Andriaki. And he's looked at a lot of uh, knee adduction moments as they relate to cartilage thickness. And if you look in healthy populations, the higher the knee adduction moment, the greater the cartilage thickness. But in Populations with osteoarthritis, the greater the knee adduction moment, the less the cartilage thick, or yeah, the mm -hmm. more cartilage thickness tends to decrease. So with stuff like that, biomechanics may matter. Like of course there's going to be a physiological component, but that biomechanical stimulus may ultimately drive those physiological responses. 
Now, in terms of pain, that's much more complicated. Yes, yes. Pain is is a very complicated, yeah, pro- emergent um, property. To quote Derek Griffin, yeah. Yes. Um, <laughs> so, in terms of pain, I think for the most part, acute biomechanical things will matter a lot. So if I'm performing a deadlift and my background's a lot more than usual, I may say, for example, strain a ligament, then that's some sort of protective response mm-hmm. that presumably results from nociception going up to the brain that's then interpreted as pain. Um, but if it's something that's like, oh, my back, my low back has been hurting for eight months, it just won't go away... And when you get to these more chronic things, it's probably more psychosocial in nature. So it's going to be context-specific, and I don't think there's one clear answer to that. Yeah, I agree. I mean, context, context, context. I mean, that matters for both acute and chronic injuries when it relates to pain. Uh, So, yeah, I think a lot of people fail to realize that context plays just as much of a role would you say that, that the context of the injury can, pay, can play just as much of a role as the biomechanical specific injury? Absolutely. So, for example, if someone in general has a greater fear of avoiding their or avoiding rounding their back in a deadlift, then when they actually do round their back, even if they do strain a ligament, it may not be proportional to the pain that's induced from that strain of the ligament. But for example, if someone doesn't really fear that or they're comfortable rounding their back, it may not hurt them even though they may experience some strain of the ligament that may or may not be somewhat injurious. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, yeah. And, and then of course we can go, kind of go down a rabbit hole here with fear avoidance behaviors and immune systems and neurology and things like that. But I'm happy with that answer, and we will move on to Jared. And I think Jared has actually joined. So, Jared, that was your question. So, Jared had a couple of other ones. Let's go with, if you were to build your own program to maximize muscle hypertrophy, what parameters would you use? And why? Let's not just say you. Let's, we have to get the why behind that. Okay, so first off, I think the ability for somebody to follow the program is going to be the most important thing. So, does it work for their lifestyle? Yeah. Um, for example, with my grad schedule, I can't be in the gym for two hours a day anymore. Hold on. <laughs> so I can't be in the gym for like two hours a day anymore. So I get in like 20 to 40 minute sessions, but I do it multiple times a week or like nearly every day. But if it's somebody that does have the time, then more time in the gym may be better because then they can have longer rest periods. They can acquire more volume. Longer rest periods between Between sets. sets. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So ultimately, the type of program that you give them depends on the person. Okay. And whether or not they can follow it. Uh, I think that's probably, yeah, the biggest parameter. Because you can give anybody a program. And we know this as clinicians and as PTs. If you give someone the first day you see them, I want you to do eight exercises. Yeah. They're going to do none. (laughs) Most likely, because it's a little overwhelming. That's what I get that question all the time. Mm -hmm. I just got it the other day. How much cardio should I be doing? How much of this should I be doing per week? So what is your answer to that based on what you know on the research? So in general, I would say 
the more times you work a muscle for per week, the better. But the more times you work it per week, the less sets you have to do for that muscle during each session. So the less time you have to spend on that muscle for each day. Um, I think effort put forth towards working that muscle is ultimately going to determine how much growth or how much progress occurs from that acute stimulus. So if I go to failure versus if I only go 50% to failure, the failure is going to result in much more growth. Um, and as of right now, we don't fully understand how important failure is for growth. And we're doing, there's research in the works that will look at that specifically. Uh, so even though we don't know how important failure is, the research that we currently have does suggest that going to failure or close to failure is extremely important for maximizing hypertrophy. Um, okay, that makes sense. Next would be... Yeah, so what would, what would you classify as the top three to four... Or you can say two. You don't have to say three to four. You can say as many as you want. Three to four most important variables to manipulate. Um, so I think overall volume would be probably the most important mm -hmm. variable to manipulate. And obviously volume is going to be a, is going to be a function of many things, including frequency, including uh, load used if you're using volume load, number of sets, uh, number of different exercises. Rest. Uh, yeah, rest. rest period. Good point. Um, because if you get more rest period, you'll be able to do more volume with in your preceding sets. Um, so, so what is an what is an optimal rest period? As of right now, the research suggests at least two minutes. Okay. In order to maximize the number of repetitions that you can perform in the following set. Okay. But there's also research that suggests that. Uh, people are really good at judging themselves in terms of their ability to recover. So if I do a set and I feel that I'm good after 90 seconds, waiting until two minutes may not be any more beneficial than me just doing the set at two or 90 seconds. I mean, that's you're on the research, man. <laughs> that's like, that's what I was just doing this week. Yeah. That's literally exactly what. How do you feel it's working for you? Good. Yeah. Good. And it doesn't matter if it's multi or single joint either. Mm -hmm. yeah. RP is, is is pretty much the gold standard. Yeah. Um, impressive. That's <laughs> why. Thank you. And so then let's say you have someone that doesn't know their body. Okay. <laughs> and because, listen, as a clinician, as a PT, right, you're getting people like sometimes I get people they've already rehabbed and they're looking for someone to work with them on fitness type things, but they'd rather work with a PT. Right? So, and oftentimes these are people who do not have a good body sense. They do not have that sense of proprioception, if you will. Mm -hmm. They literally don't know when they, they can't do anymore. So how do you work with those people given these sort of parameters of consistency, frequency, and volume? I mean, do you then take them to that full two minutes between sets? Do you... Um, so what are you, a personal trainer just working with a... Yeah, let's a, say, let's say you're a personal trainer and you're, or, or you're a physical therapist and you're doing wellness, right? Because now the big thing for PTs is not to get people when they're injured or after surgery, after accident, but to get them while they're healthy and keep them healthy. So <laughs> if I'm a person working with a new patient that wants to get stronger, bigger, what have you, and they're healthy, 
I would, but they're not coordinated at all. They don't know what they're doing. I would start with regressions to the basic movements. So like instead of, like I said, instead of doing barbell back squats, have have them do something like a goblet squat, or instead of having them do a regular barbell deadlift, maybe just have them do kettlebell deadlifts or something along those lines. Dig K. Thanks, Jared. Um, <laughs> so in in that. In those individuals who don't have that kinesthetic awareness, yeah, do you think that it might be a better strategy to optimize adherence by <clears throat> just having them go to one set to near failure um, and then completely disregard rest period? Because the research really shows that one set gives you a lot of benefit, especially if you work pretty hard. Mm-hmm. Like, How would you approach a patient in that situation that doesn't have that kinesthetic awareness, but really you want to get fit, but maybe adherence might be a problem. Yeah, so you're absolutely right in that. That first set does offer most uh, okay. most of the benefits. Okay. Um, and that's actually what I've been doing lately, especially since I entered grad school, I don't have as much time. So I'll just do one set of each muscle and I'll do full body every day. And I mean, it's nice, I can mix things up. I can do different movements every day and I can, uh, go back to the same movements multiple times a week if I wish so it never really gets boring and I can kind of just do whatever I want and variation does seem to help people in terms of sticking with the program because it doesn't get boring like if like because a power lifter will go in and do like eight sets of squats a regular person doesn't want to do that like they hate one set of squats enough just let them hate their life once and move <laughs> on it's ridiculous um so yeah, I definitely think that's a good recommendation. I do think they can get most of the benefits and a lot of the learning and stuff that you were talking about before, Karen, from just doing the one set uh, to failure for each exercise and moving mm-hmm. on. Yeah, I think that's good advice. And I think that's, I think, you know, what kind of population I think that would work well with too might be sort of your over 65, so you're that older crowd, right? Because they can, I mean, they don't necessarily have to be, if you think about having your workouts like in a quadrant, right, where you might have a high heart rate, lots of variability, high heart rate, low variability, low heart rate, high variability, low heart rate, low variability, right? Yeah, I said that right, right? Yeah. So I think for that older crowd, that sort of working that one set to to fatigue, if you will. I hate to say failure. You don't want to say that with an older crowd. We're going to work to (laughs) failure. That is not what they want to hear. But I think working to fatigue, I think might be great for that population. Do you agree with that? Or would you sort of change that up a bit? Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. And like, you can vary up the repetition schemes and stuff. So like, if you do a low repetition to fatigue, it's not going to get their heart rate up like crazy. But if you do something that's like a 15... Uh, repetition set, then it's going to get their heart rate up. Mm-hmm. And yeah, yeah, so I think it really hits all those points very well. Yeah, I like that. Okay, so Jared had one more question, and this kind of coincides with a question from Clinton Lee as well. And it's, um, let's start out with what are your thoughts on the tissue homeostasis model for structures such as the intervertebral discs? And then Clinton Lee sort of had another question about the intravertebral disc. Boy, I cannot have a beer and a half and do this, can I? Um, I should have stuck with wine. Um, 
He also had a question on the interferodebral discs, and it kind of goes back to Stu McGill's research. Um, but let's take Jared's question first. So what are your thoughts on the tissue homeostasis model for structures such as the intervertebral discs? Okay, so I'm not super read up on this stuff, at least not as much as like Brett is, because he wrote that review a few years ago with, with to crunch or not to crunch. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so he'd be much better prepared to answer these questions than I would. But I'll, from what I understand, there are a ton of things that happen within real living discs that don't necessarily occur within these cadaver models or within these porcine models that I don't think can be ignored. Uh, for example, I know some of Michael Adams' research suggests that just moving around, and this even goes for like if you're sitting and staying in a static posture, moving around is better and sitting in different postures, like slouching than sitting upright. Like That allows more nutrients to get into the disc and that allows the disc to adapt, that allows the disc to heal and go through all these physiological processes that living things do, we adapt. Um, Hopefully. <laughs> or maladapt, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's something that some of Stu McGill's and Callianne's research ignores because if you're using a cadaver model and f- taking it through flexion and extension, 86,400 times, it's not necessarily what a person is doing, uh, both in the temporal, its temporal characteristics differ, and also its biological characteristics differ. Um, so uh, I think as we were sitting around before this, you kind of had an interesting thought about these cadaver studies and how they can relate to humans. And can you kind of talk about that terminology that you use, which I really thought was great, and why is that an issue? Yeah, so there's actually a perspective piece. I forget who wrote it, but it's called something along the lines of, is biomechanics really necromechanics? in that bio refers to something that's living and necro refers to something that's dead. Mm -hmm. And since a lot of these biomechanics studies pull variables or properties or characteristics from things that are dead, such as cadavers, we're really studying the mechanics of dead things, not living things. So by applying these tissue characteristics and trying to extrapolate that to living things, it may not be proper, and we need to keep that in mind when even within biomechanical modeling and musculoskeletal modeling, we need to keep that in mind when trying to extrapolate these things to living people. And Because living people have bio- nervous systems and blood flow and... Our tissues heal, they adapt. Right. Yep. And in addition to that, even some recent research, uh, there are some MRI studies that look at, for example, muscle moment arms, and they show that a living person's moment arms are about double that, or close to there, that of a cadaver. Wait, say that again? <laughs> so, uh, the moment arm, what now? <laughs> so the muscle moment arms of a living person mm-hmm. are close to double that of a cadaver. Why? So this has to do with a number of things. It has to do with muscle size. And uh, me, or... Sorry, Chris Beardsley, Brett Contreras, and I actually published a paper on something along these lines where we looked at uh, the relationship of muscle size and muscle moment arm. And as you increase muscle size, its moment arm increases. Makes sense. Yeah, and these cadavers, you know, they're 
they're not exactly young, healthy people. A lot of them come from right. elderly individuals that are probably 65 donating or Donating their yeah, bodies to Donating science. their bodies. Yeah. Their muscles are atrophied. Mm-hmm. And not only that, but their muscles, um, they're... They're not hydrated. Like, right, so they yeah. don't really have the extensibility qualities that a hydrated live muscle would have. Not only extensibility, but uh, they're almost atrophied further by the dehydration. Interesting. Yeah. And when you're... Here's a question, and, and I don't know if you have the answer to this, but when they're doing studies, on, are these like embalmed cadavers? I do believe so. I've never done a cadaveric study. Do you know what I mean? From, from because, like, methods, does that embalming method make a difference as well? Because when I was in PT school, I don't know, Nick, I don't know about you, but when you did gross anatomy, right? Mm-hmm. So they're embalmed bodies, mm-hmm. which are certainly different than, uh, and you can't have a non-embalmed body because <laughs> it's, a little decay. It's, it's disgusting, you know, and it's smelly. Like, we had a partially embalmed body that we had to send back because it was not... <laughs> It did not smell good. Um, so I, I, I often wondered, do the chemicals, the embalming chemicals, also have any impact on these biomechanical studies? I don't know the answer to that question, and I don't know if you know the answer to that question, but I think it's something to think about. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen any studies particularly that look at embalmed versus... Non-embalmed. Yeah, that, that's interesting. Um, it likely does affect some mm-hmm. of the mechanical properties mm-hmm. of tissues and mm-hmm. maybe that can't be ignored i don't know yeah i don't know so we talked about the limitations of a cadaveric study what are some of the pros the benefits of using well, good question a cadaveric study uh so with cadavers you can do almost whatever you want right uh so with a living person you can't open them up and see hey what happens if i pull this muscle or this ligament so with these uh, cadaveric studies, we can, for example, a pretty interesting one is they took almost all the ligaments off the knee and they just left the quadriceps and the ACL. And you can investigate um, how the quadriceps and how the quadriceps tendon affect the ability of the ACL to um, resist anterior tibial uh, translation. Sorry, and. I mean, they actually had interesting findings. They said that in some ranges of motion, the uh, quadriceps are actually protective of the of the ACL. So that's something we can never do with actual humans, because we can actually isolate these things and do it in a very controlled reductionist setting. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And you don't have muscle guarding. You don't have all of the things that you would have from a, a human. Exactly. It, uh, a, you know, a non a living knocked out human. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because you can, like, if you look at, like, taking the ACL, if you look at ACL translation from a torn ACL from a person who is under anesthesia about to go under an ACL surgery, mm-hmm. it is a completely different thing than when the person is not under some sort of anesthesia mm-hmm. because you don't have all of the protect- protection around the joint that comes instinctively. Right. Right? Because you have all these mechanoreceptors and all of the ligaments. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So um, let's go to a question from Bruce Mendoza. He said, I'd be curious to know his thoughts on quote-unquote body tempering and perhaps an opinion on how it works. So can you define what it is and then you can give your opinion? So 
body tempering is pretty much you take a very heavy cylindrical piece of metal and use it almost like a foam roller, but it, instead of rolling on it, it rolls on you. So Sounds you have horrible. <laughs> Go ahead. Feels good. <laughs> Does it? You've, yeah. you've had this done? Yeah. That sounds like my that. worst nightmare. Yeah, they're like 100-pound things, and then you can roll them out, and they... <clears throat> no. It rolls on you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No. No. That's a no to me. I have, like, <laughs> such a sensitive nervous system, I would probably have to go to the emergency room afterwards. <laughs> but, okay. So, body tempering is a large, cylindrical, heavy thing rolling on top of you. Yes. Why don't you just get run over by a car? <laughs> it's a bit heavier. Okay. <laughs> There's uh, maybe some fear avoidance with that. <laughs> there might be a little fear avoidance <laughs> with that. Okay, so um, what, what, is, what is your opinion on how it works? Well, wait, why do people, why would you do that? From my understanding, it's just that it's, it's, it's like taking a foam roll and then going on steroids. Okay. Because then, because then now you can just lie back and relax and then have, have somebody else roll you out with a lot of pressure. So you can take a hundred pound cylindrical piece of metal and then put more pressure through it. So now you're getting 200, 300 pounds of pressure on that muscle. Mm -hmm. And that's... Okay, why would someone want to do that? Um, Aside from some, you know, sadomasochistic (laughs) underpinnings. But from a biomechanical, from a biological standpoint, why would someone want to do that? Uh, more from an anecdotal perspective is these lifters this is especially big in powerlifting circles okay so a lot of these people are always in some sort of pain um and they find it helps them kind of recover from that pain at least temporarily for that training session and what is the explanation behind is that just like and a release of an endogenous opioid that comes down, some sort of cascade from the brain. Like, what is the background on that? So, that yeah. Maybe. So, that would be, my guess, some sort mm-hmm. of uh, central pain modulation mm-hmm. or uh, DNIC. I know people don't like using that term as much anymore for whatever reason. Um, but, yeah, that would be my guess, some sort of endogenous opioid or serotonin mm-hmm. or if you want to go the more applied route it it's some sort of expectation that this will result in pain relief and it's also somewhat of a distraction like if this hurts more during that event then there's almost like a a relative difference after that event it might feel good yeah it sounds horrible (laughs) to me i don't know where did you have this done nick where did um, at my buddies in the military, and oh. so they have it in Fort Bragg, and they also have it at the bodybuilding powerlifting gym um, in Mount Vernon that I go to. Wow. Yeah, that just sounds, to me, like I'm already uncomfortable <laughs> with that. Oh, my gosh. That's crazy. Okay, not crazy. It's definitely not my cup of tea. I would never want to have that done. Wait, do people have that done? Like, let's say, what if you weigh, like, 120 pounds? And you have this 100-pound thing rolling on you. I mean, is that... What is that? Like, is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? Is there injury? Can someone get injured by this or not really? I mean, potentially there could be injuries, right? Like, if you go over some some sort of artery or something that's not in a position for it to... Mm. 
be compressed or yeah. it may be going over some sort of sharp structure or something like uh, of course there's inherent risk to something sure, like this sure. you're yeah. more or less impinging a bunch of <coughs> tissues in hopes that it'll make you feel better Mm-mm. all right so let's take a step mm-hmm. back from body tempering and let's just go to regular old foam rolling okay okay so what do you think is happening when someone uses the foam roller and they feel better, you know? And how long does one need, do you need to foam roll for 40 minutes before you start your workout? Do you do it after your workout? So talk a little bit to that. Okay, so in terms of foam rolling, the response of making you feel better I would guess is strictly due to some sort of endogenous opioid response or some sort of, um, not just endogenous opioids, but descending inhibition. Exactly. Uh, some sort of neuropeptide response that Mm -hmm. triggers your pleasure centers and makes you feel better. Mm -hmm. Um, but other than that, in terms of increasing range of motion, it may be related to that to some extent, because if that will, kind of calm you down a bit and allow you to achieve greater ranges of motion. And not only that, but there's some research that there's a short transient response, at least in massage. I think there's now one paper in foam rolling that's like about a minute following massage or foam rolling where there's a decrease elasticity within muscle. Interesting. And whether or not that's clinically significant, mm-hmm. I don't. I don't think it is because it goes away within three minutes. Right, right. Um, but that's something that I don't think can necessarily be ignored because all these people talk about, oh, there's no effect on the tissue. Maybe there is. There's mm-hmm. some evidence to support that. There's a very transient change in the mechanical properties of the tissue. And when you say the tissue, are you saying muscle? Are you talking about fascia? What are we talking about here? Uh, we, not that I want to get okay. into a fascia discussion because I do not want to do that right now. But what, when you say tissue, what tissues are you referring to? So it's hard to isolate the two from each other, but one of the studies, the one in the massage, used shear wave ultrasound elastography to look at the actual muscle itself following massage. So you can actually look at the ultrasound images and see, oh, it's not on the outside. It's the actual muscle itself where there's a decrease in tissue, uh, well, shear wave velocity, which is like a surrogate for elasticity. Interesting. Okay, so when should you foam roll? Do you foam roll, let's say you're, we'll take a couple different, let's take one scenario, you're a bodybuilder. Okay. And you're gonna go into a session where you're gonna be lifting heavy. Do you foam roll before, do you foam roll after? Does it make a difference? So I'm of the mindset where so long as you can achieve the range of, ranges of motion needed in order to perform the movements in your workout, there's no need to foam roll before your workout itself. Moreover, in our study that we published, we found that if you add foam rolling to dynamic stretching, so we didn't really separate the two, we just had them do both, um, there was no increase in Thomas test and hip extension range of motion during the modified Thomas test, nor was there an increase, or sorry, there actually was an increase in hip extension range of motion, but mm-hmm. that was um, that was countered by the decrease in knee flexion range of motion, so there's no change in rectus femoris length 
during the modified Thomas test. As confusing okay. as that sounds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. Um, could you talk about the crossover effect? Like I read your colleague Chris Beardsley's study um, where they looked at foam rolling for ankle dorsiflexion mm -hmm. and they found that foam rolling on one side actually increased the range of motion on the other side. Can you talk about the potential neurological implications for this effect? Yeah. And how um, important it may or may not good be? Good question. Yeah. Uh, so that's a really good question. That's a great paper. I think Kelly was the first author on that, Kelly and Beardsley, 2016. Mm -hmm. um, so what they looked at was what happens if you foam roll, I think it was an ipsilateral calf and a contralateral calf, and they looked at how rolling the ipsilateral calf would increase range of motion on the contralateral calf mm -hmm. and vice versa. And what they found was that it didn't necessarily increase the range of motion as much as on the ip or mm -hmm. the contralateral did not increase as much as the ipsilateral, but it did increase. So to me, this suggests kind of strongly that there's some sort of central uh, descending modulation. So could it be, I mean, is there, when you're foam rolling, aside from, let's say, you have some sort of descending modulation of something mm -hmm. from the brain through the spinal cord out to the muscles, is there, do we know, is there any change within the nervous system itself? You know, those 45 miles of nerves that run through the body, right? So can foam rolling on one side change any sort of movement uh, of a of the nervous system that may account for that ipsilateral change um contralateral change sorry so you know what i mean or even neural gliding yeah neural gliding on some, one side some, could that some make mechanical a difference input yeah. that's changing the afferent you know the afferent input, input. into the system yeah, yeah yeah and then that gets kind of jumbled up and then spit out and then we get an increase in tolerance or a range of motion mm -hmm or some positive byproduct that can help influence clinical outcomes. Yeah. So can that foam rolling, the, let's say you have pain on the ipsilateral side, can foam rolling contralateral side improve some sort of? Yeah, some sort of, some sort of output on that opposite side, yeah. So I think Chris's research does kind of suggest that that's possible. Mm -hmm. I think we do need a lot more work yeah. in order to really elucidate those things and to really see how far that can be taken. And I mean, I'm not sure if you saw there was another study this year that looked at lower limb stretching versus upper limb stretching and mm -hmm. its effects on lower like, limb. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, basically what they did was they would Crazy. stretch like a lower limb and they would look at its effects on upper limb range of motion, and they would stretch an upper limb look at its mm -hmm. effects on mm -hmm. lower limb, and what they showed was there was some crossover. Yeah. So uh, it may be with all of these modalities that there's at least some sort of neuro central neurophysiological mm -hmm. response that can't be ignored, and that likely play a huge part in the clinical outcome. So from a clinical standpoint, I think if you have a patient that's super, like I'm super sensitive around my neck that we can maybe take this research and say from a clinical standpoint, it may behoove you to look at other parts of the body to make a, a positive effect on something that might not be at the exact point of pain. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And patients may even be more open to doing those things because mm -hmm. like 
what if touching their neck hurts when they have neck pain? Well, yeah. then you can do something on their leg, and if that carries over to their neck, great. Yeah, it's less threatening. Like you said, it's contact, it's threat, and it's it's what what can this patient tolerate? Exactly. And I think you have to look at all of that. Okay. All right, so we have time for like one more question. Hold on. So I think the last part of that yeah. was oh, sorry, the, before I yeah. work out. Oh, yeah, sorry. Okay. Um, so if I'm remembering correctly, there is literature to suggest that both foam rolling after your workout may help prevent DOMS mm -hmm. for your next workout, or if you ha already have DOMS, foam rolling before your workout may help improve the outcome of that actual workout. Okay. Um, and Great. I'm, there's actually some interesting kind of cellular level physiological research that looks at the effects of massage following a workout and that kind of suggests that massage following a workout may have implications for healing and recovery following that workout and that's like some of Thomas Best's research from Ohio State. And in addition to that, there was another study that's much more clinical where they looked at massage following a workout versus no massage following a workout. And the group that got the massage following the workout had uh, less DOMS and they were able to lift more weight sooner following that workout. Okay. And there were also changes in like creatinine and mm -hmm. those types of markers. Mm -hmm. That's great. Um, and I think that's also good to hear for clinicians and just for for everyday sort of person who works out that there is some validity to whether it be foam rolling or research or some kind of body work. Yeah. Okay. All right. So Nick, I'll have you, cause you had a good question that uh, before we started about EMG stuff. So I'll have you kind of ask that question and then maybe we'll <clears throat> end on that and we'll do anyway. Go ahead. Let's end on that. So we have, there's a lot of research out there on electromyography or EMGs. And, uh, and I know you do research um, with EMGs. And so based on all that you know about EMGs, what can we actually draw from EMG studies? And what conclusions? What conclusions can we make that are fair to make where... Do we need to go to be able to make those better conclusions? Mm -hmm. And so, yeah. So I take it you're talking about EMG as it pertains to exercises, muscle activation. So this exercise has shown that this that that glute activation or glute EMG is higher in this range of motion than that range of motion. Does that mean that we need to train in that range of motion to elicit gluteal hypertrophy? Or does that mean that we need, you know, so. So actually a few of my colleagues and I are writing a, a nice review or perspective piece on this that pertains to what can and cannot be drawn from surface EMG studies, especially as it pertains to exercise. So what, a lot of what we don't know right now is what these acute measures mean for longitudinal outcomes. So will greater EMG, does that necessarily imply greater hypertrophy or greater strength gains? So we do not have longitudinal data at this point to support such a conclusion. And if anything, I think EMG studies provide really good, interesting insight as to how the nervous system works especially if you use it in combination with things like modeling, you can better understand how the brain, you know, like in motor control, the 
uh, degrees of freedom problem, which basically states we have all of these muscles that are somewhat redundant in terms of how we can perform a movement. So I can perform this movement by activating one muscle this much, another muscle that much, and there are an infinite amount of combinations in order to carry out a kinematic outcome. And that's what the degrees of freedom problem is. And EMG, if you use it in combination with modeling and stuff like that, you can better understand these things. But in terms of clinical outcomes from surface EMG, I don't think we have the data at this point in time to draw strong conclusions. Um, we do need longitudinal studies that attempt to almost validate EMG as a surrogate measure. And basically what that would mean is you would need, uh, in a very reductionist sense, maybe have an isometric exercise where the muscle's at the same length and you have somebody do an exercise or perform a contraction at one intensity versus another intensity or have them change something about that uh, isometric contraction that shifts muscles or something. So like if you're doing elbow flexion, have one have a greater supination component so it's more biceps and have the other have a more of just a straight elbow flexion component. So it's a combination of biceps and brachialis, something along those lines. And you can kind of see how surface EMG will or will not correlate to changes in hypertrophy, for example. And you would have them do that at a bunch of different intensities, like 50 through 90%. Then you would also be able to see, okay, at what percent difference does surface EMG matter? So if I have a 10% difference, does that matter for hypertrophy? If I have 20%, does that matter? Mm -hmm. We don't know these things yet. And we also do not know the thresholds that's needed for hypertrophy to occur. Like I know some studies have said, oh, we used at least 60% of MVIC as a measure for increases in strength or increases in hypertrophy and that's that's more in the physical therapy literature which would presumably be stricter than the strength and performance stuff but um, and that depends on the testing position used yeah that's a great point right. yeah so that's um, a whole nother variable <laughs> variable yeah that's very important because that will then it's like comparing apples to oranges exactly so for example there's a step-up study that looks at the gluteus maximus and what they did was they normalized gluteus maximus EMG to something like 60 degrees hip flexion around there but the thing is the gluteus maximus gets the highest EMG amplitude when you're in full extension so then you're normalizing to a lower number so then all these numbers are going to be like maximized, or not maximized, but yeah, they're going to be inflated, inflated. greatly inflated. Mm -hmm. And we wrote about that in our MVIC publication that was part of Brett's PhD. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sorry. I mean, so can, I guess the bottom line is, can we look at EMG studies and take that as a gold standard? Definitely not. I would... I think EMG is great for providing unique insight into the nervous system, and I also think it's great for kind of informing training studies or longitudinal studies. But at this point in time, I wouldn't form strict clinical applications from EMG mm -hmm. studies. Okay. Thank you. All right. Now, I have one more question for you. Um, what would you tell... The Andrew who graduated from high school, I don't know, would you graduate like five years ago or something? Um, uh, was it seven? I was pretty close. Um, so what would you tell that person then 
knowing what you know now and where you are in life and in your career and where you want to go? Be a kinesiology major or an engineering major, not a computer science major. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Um, other than that, I think a lot of my past, I do have a computer science and uh, programming background. So a lot of that has been very important for some of my research with the modeling stuff and it's taught me how to think differently. So I don't, I don't know if I'd do much differently if I had to go back or tell myself to do anything differently. Mm -hmm. um, maybe just me be more productive when I was younger. Interesting. So let's talk about this for just one second. Because okay. we were, so before this podcast, the three of us were sitting around and chatting and talking about procrastinating. And I said, when I procrastinate, so for instance, I procrastinated last week and I watched the entire season of The Night Of, just <laughs> binged it like crazy. Um, Nick, what did you say? What do you usually do when you procrastinate? I mean, I work out or I do other things that are fun but are not right. what you do. Right. So let's talk about what Andrew does to procrastinate because this is pretty amazing. Go ahead. Um, so if I want to procrastinate for an assignment, for the most part, I'll either read or write research. Yeah, so he writes a research paper to procrastinate, and I watch an entire season of an HBO show. So that's the, that's why he's the smartest person alive, and I'm interviewing him. So there you go. Um, all right. So before we wrap up, what would you what would what would you like to say to the listeners just to kind of give a quick little synopsis of kind of your thoughts on biomechanics and maybe how they relate to the clinical world. Biomechanics still matters, um, as opposed to what some people, I don't want to say that dichotomy has been made, but sometimes it seems like people totally ignore it, but it does matter for some things. It's just in what context does it matter? And also from the people that are purely biomechanical, the neurophysiological and the pain science stuff matters a yeah. lot and yeah. we can't ignore that and I think some of our biomechanical outcomes in our studies would be a lot cleaner if we took the pain science into account and some of the pain science stuff I don't think it can totally ignore the biomechanics and yeah. I think we should I think it would be a lot more productive if we work together uh, as researchers and also clinicians try to get involved with the research to improve the research instead of just criticizing the shit out of it online. Getting these everyday clinicians involved, like we talked about at the beginning, kind of brings a full circle, is if you are a clinician, reach out to a researcher and see how you can get involved, which might be part of patient outcomes. Because like you said, if you're a researcher, you're not treating 20, you're not 24 seven, but you're not treating on a weekly basis. Mm -hmm. And so they need that input from the clinicians. So maybe more clinicians reaching out to researchers asking how can I get involved might be a way to get more people interested in the ins and outs of research. Yep, totally agree. Yeah? Okay. All right. So let's, um, we'll kind of end on that. Do you guys have anything else you want to add as a parting comment? Benson. We're good? All right. Well, I want to thank you, Nick, for coming. And thank you, Andrew, very, very much for coming on. And um, 
hopefully we'll get to this again. For sure. Thank you for having me. Anytime. Thank Thanks. you. Appreciate thank you. It. All right. Everyone, thank you so much for listening. Um, have a great week and stay healthy, wealthy, and smart. <laughs>